This evening I'd like to continue the theme of exploring how we practice with thoughts and emotions. And I'd like to focus particularly on the theme of practicing skillfully with thoughts and emotions and go into some more depth about how to do that. And to consider such practice with thoughts and emotions as a foundation for speech practice. I think we've begun to see how much in our thoughts and emotions there's quite a bit of um, conditioning. There's, there are a lot of habitual patterns that we have and many of those are connected with suffering, with difficulty, with really actually not really knowing what's happening. We can see how in many ways we're really um, sometimes at the mercy of our habit patterns. Whether it's our patterns of thinking, of going up the ladder of inference, of having emotional reactions that go on and on in certain ways. And we may find that that translates into certain Uh, quite repetitive patterns, maybe in our relationships or in our work. And this practice, I think, offers a way for us to take a kind of radical responsibility for our own thoughts and emotions. So I want to explore how we do that and how we do that skillfully. Often I like to think of a model of the larger sense of practice as very simple. And there, there can be a sense that what practice actually means in its essence is quite simple. It was pointed to by a 10th century Zen teacher. And he was asked, what is the essence of awakening? What do you think he answered? Anyone have a guess? So he might have answered, he might have answered love or calm or what? Observation. Observation Observation linked with clear expression of feelings and needs. (laughs) He might have said that awakening is the breaking apart of the habitual polarization of self and others such that there's a deep interpenetration of all of our experience. with the totality of life. And that this feels good. <laughs> Might have said that. He didn't. He said that the essence of awakening is appropriate response. Very down to earth. Right? Very simple. And sometimes I like to unpack that sense of appropriate response uh, by a very simple model where I first 
on the basis of mindfulness, I have a sense of what's happening. Then, in order to develop a response, I invite my best wisdom, my best uh, compassion. You know, maybe I ground in the heart and I bring forth my wisdom. And it could involve a lot of what we've looked at. It could involve really checking in with what I'm feeling, with what I value, and you know, maybe reflecting on what the consequences might be as best I can sense, and so on. And so on the basis of my best uh, wisdom and compassion, I formulate an intention. For example, to speak in a difficult circumstance in a certain way. And then I act, I respond, you know, I speak in that case. And in a sense, we're training with some of the different aspects of that. But in a way, it's, uh, we can think of that appropriate response as quite simple. I try to be aware of what's happening, and then I invite my best wisdom and compassion, form an intention, and respond. And we do that moment after moment after moment after moment. That's, that's a well-lived life, right? Doing that as much as we can. Eat with easy situations or difficult situations. And one way of talking about this sense of practice and the, even the sense of appropriate response is that we take responsibility for our experience. In this case, uh, particularly for our thoughts and emotions. We take responsibility, which again uh, means especially that we have the ability to respond. Responsibility in that sense. I don't say that I have caused all the causes and conditions that are there in my life. You know, that I, um, I don't take responsibility for others' actions, but I take responsibility in a sense for my response to whatever's happened. And there's something very uh, crucial about that. And it's, there's that, that what that actually means is that we're free. We're not at the mercy of habitual reactions when we can respond. And so a lot of our work with thoughts and emotions will be to see where we do have habitual reactions, where we're stuck in a certain way, where we're free. And we can work very specifically with thoughts and emotions to be able to respond more freely. And ultimately it means, I think, that our own uh, deep happiness is in a sense our responsibility. Again, it's contrary to a lot of the social messages we get, right? A lot of the conditioning where we think, uh, if only this were the case, then I would be happy. You know, it's the basis for um, advertising <laughs> and for much of the economy, right? That, that we have a sense of wanting and, oh, I'm not so happy now, but I think if, if I had this, the newest electronic gadget, right? I will be happy. And there's quite a lot uh, of social conditioning 
that encourages us to look outward for happiness or for satisfaction. And we may have a strong conditioning of only I had this relationship or this job or this level of income, then I would be okay. And it's very pervasive and sometimes quite uh, subtle conditioning. I was working with someone a few weeks ago and we were able to get beneath some of her um, self-judgments. And it seemed that beneath it was a sense that I can't really be happy as a divorced woman. I need to be in relationship like that. It was a very strong conditioning. You know. And we might each have a sense of aversion of that. We saw that that's also uh, expressed in a lot of the way we, even the way we use language, certainly in English. I don't, I don't know about other languages. But in English, you know, we use language that suggests, as we were looking at this morning, that others are the cause of my emotions. Right? We examine that. He made me angry, right? We say that. And again, we can, like Oren was saying, we can know somewhat what that means or there's a way that his actions are connected with my anger, right? That's uh, not the same thing as causing it. We can say it triggered it, right? But that's not the same as causing. Meaning that... um, Causation would involve inner factors as well. And we could imagine having certain inner factors a certain way, such that, well, we, we know this, like that something that really agitated me 10 years ago doesn't agitate me now because I've changed within, right? So there are inner factors that play a role in my emotions, you know, as, as well as other, other things. And we saw the way the language can sometimes be confusing in terms of, I felt disrespected and suggesting that my feelings are dependent on someone else's actions, right? And we've looked at that. And again, it doesn't mean that we're not deeply impacted or triggered by others. It doesn't mean that at all. But it means that we can take a radical responsibility, again, that sense of ability to respond in the present moment. So essentially, we are not victims of the past. That's a radical stance, right? I am not a victim of what happened. And, and again, that's an aspiration. You know, some of what has most inspired me and maybe inspired you in others is seeing people who had hard past and who worked their way out of it or through it, right? It can be tremendous. It, it, it can... Um, can bring tears to, for many of us. You know, some examples, you know, uh, I get very emotional when I see some of the movies or films of the civil rights movement of the late 50s and early 60s, because here were, especially, especially for me, was older African-American men and women who walked with dignity, right? Tremendous um, dignity and courage when the past could have um, crippled them, 
right? And they have to have a um, tremendous amount of inner strength, right? And a way that um, there was the past, yes, it was really hard, but there's some um, freedom which goes beyond that, right? That's really what we're talking about in this whole approach. You know, where I think of another friend who had a very, very difficult childhood and her aspirations were to like be a writer and maybe a college professor and it wasn't going to happen. And it was, that was very hard for her. And yet she kept on going. She didn't, as it were, give in to uh, despair, right? And there's something very beautiful and powerful about that that um, really points to the sense that we're, we're, we're uh, aiming to have this radical responsibility for our own minds. And again, it, it doesn't mean, I think, that we do it just by, my, just by ourselves. That's kind of, uh, sort of a, maybe a myth in our culture, a myth of in, independence. I think we talked about that earlier. And I think that community plays a really, really important role in taking responsibility for ourselves. You know, there might be some conditioning that we share. Let's say, you know, I have to deal with conditioning as a man or others have to deal with conditioning as a woman or conditioning as a uh, African-American or Latino or, or um, some way in which we get certain messages from the culture, right? And we, can inter- we internalize them and often working with that you know, or Asian Americans, or uh, gay or lesbian, or whatever. You know, or older, or younger, <laughs> right? There, you know, there are amazing number of messages that are always that are often um, negative, right? That about this group or that group, and so forth. And I think you know, it's very it's hard to do that by oneself. One has to often be with others. You know, and that's why. Historically, there were the women's groups, you know, that would meet and, and do work together or, or different kind of groups. I've had friends who've been in groups dealing with what they call internalized oppression, right, in different, in different ways. Or we try to, you know, I work also a lot with people working with um, judgments, with the judgmental mind. And that we, some of it may have a social origin, some of it a family origin, in which we may judge ourselves harshly or judge others. And it's very hard to do that work by oneself. We need support. So when I say we take responsibility for ourselves, I really mean we. You know, and and we, do a, we can do a lot by ourselves, but, but we need also a tremendous amount of support you know, from friends, from community, from teachers, from mentors, from... Uh, like-minded people who share the aspiration. And I think it's that um, support still needs a lot of work to get there. You know, it's one of my interests is to have more of a support structure for our practice. I think we, we need more. You know, this isn't about do it on your, on your own. You know, I think we know who could be doing the work that we're doing now at this retreat on your own, right? Maybe a rare person. But, but it's hard.
I want to talk about three specific ways of practicing skillfully with thoughts and emotions. And most of my talk will, will cover this. And then I'll, at the end, apply it to uh, speech situations. How do we bring that into speech? And again, uh, I think the suggestion is that there's a tremendous value for, work, for, for practicing working with thoughts and emotions in the protected environment of meditation and seeing what's there, seeing what my thoughts and emotions are, seeing what my patterns are, seeing where I have habitual reactions, seeing what's there. Uh, And we need, I think, that uh, quiet, the focus, the lack of complexity, because then we want to, on the basis of sometimes what we do in our own practice, we bring it out into the world. But the world is moving so fast and interactions are so complex, like what I read, I think maybe it was last night, I misspoke, he misheard, shots rang out. (laughs) Things happened very quickly. God, that feels like a week ago. (laughs) Time is very interesting, isn't it? Okay. Um, So three forms of practicing skillfully with thoughts and emotions. The first is when we're out of balance with thoughts and emotions, come back to balance. Do what you need to do to come back to balance. That's the first. The second is cultivating mindfulness of thoughts and emotions. Large area that we've been focusing on quite a bit. And the third is uh, skillful responses to um, particularly uh, challenging thoughts and emotions, but really skillful responses to thoughts and emotions. In other words, um, mindfulness is especially quite receptive. We hang out with what's there. We see it, maybe we investigate it some, which is a little more active. But there's a way in which we're just being with what's present. And there's also a place for more active intervention with thoughts and emotions. That's the third area. And they shade into each other. There are aspects of mindfulness that are really about skillful response, but there's a lot of mindfulness that's just hanging out with what's there, right? It's just more receptive, okay? So the first aspect is uh, coming back to balance. And this actually takes mindfulness. We need to know when we're taken over by uh, thoughts and emotions, particularly habitual ones. We somehow need to know that we're out of balance or that actually I'm not mindful or actually that this habitual reaction, let's say uh, there's a self-judgment I'm having which has, uh, is like a fog that's uh, over me, right? And I have that over me and I can feel it. It's like a fog. I know I'm a little bit Possessed almost, right? And we have to know, it's, it's um, somewhat paradoxical, we have to know when we're lost. We have to have, and it can be 5% of our attention knows we're lost and 95% is lost. <laughs> right? Do you know that one? <laughs> I think, you know, I, sometimes I, I like to be like a, a zombie. I think I'm lost. <laughs> you know? We have to have a sense that I'm lost 
or I'm stuck. And that's not always easy, right? And sometimes we're lost and stuck and the minutes or the hours or the days go by, right? And so we might, someone else might say, Donald, I think you're stuck. And that might be someone helping me to see that, right? So again, we need the support of others often. But um, this first type of practice depends on some sense that I'm stuck or I'm out of balance or I'm caught in a repetitive thought pattern. I need, and I need to know that in some way. And that's not always easy. Even in our meditation, it's sometimes hard to know the distinction between thinking I'm mindful and actually being lost. It's not always easy to know that distinction. So let's suppose that we actually say to myself, I'm stuck, or I'm lost, or help. <laughs> right, help. Uh, what do I do then? What are some options? There are a lot of different options that we have, and uh, one whole group of them falls in the category of antidotes. We can have antidotes. It's like, like a medical term. We can have an antidote to a distressed state or to a stuck state. We can sometimes uh, invoke uh, something that will actually shift us out of where we are. Metta and some of the heart practices like compassion and so forth have that power when we keep on developing them. That we can actually, uh, if we're a little bit lost, we can go to a practice like metta which because of the repetition of phrases uh, really is potentially concentrating of the mind. Often for the antidote, we need a certain degree of concentration, but we can use metta to really move out of a difficult place. You know, so for example, uh, maybe a more common experience might be that I wake up in the middle of the night and something's on my mind and I go into a distress pattern. It's probably quite a common experience, right? How many can relate to that? Okay. And some of you sleep just very soundly. (laughs) Uh, But let's say that I wake up, it's three in the morning, and let's say something difficult happened in a relationship, and I'm either judging the other or maybe I'm judging myself. I'm just in it, right? When we remember, and metta has a certain degree of strength, we can use metta. And it can actually shift us out, again, with the power of concentration. The earlier we notice the stuckness, the easier it works, right? The sooner we notice, it doesn't gather momentum. And so we can, you know, so if that ever happens to me, as soon as I can, I don't, I try to watch out for lingering and letting something develop, right? And I sit up in bed and I just go right to metta right away. And others may have some different ways to do that, but that can be an effective practice. And I know what other, you know, in the last five years I've had at least two experiences where there was something that really uh, took me over. I remember once it was um, when I was uh, camping in Colorado. And I was uh, doing a retreat at Tara Mandala. Some of you may know. It's a wonderful retreat center uh, started by Lama Sultram Alioni. It has a lot of emphasis on the sacred feminine. Quite, quite beautiful uh, retreats there. And I was doing a retreat and I was camping and they showed me to a place 
And they said, oh, this is a really great site. And they said, you know, there was a bear that came through here a week ago. <laughs> but we found it, and we took it 50 miles away. So I said, oh, it's a really nice place. It's kind of away some from the main activity. So I said, I'll, I'll go there. In some state of mind or other, I said that. <laughs> so at the end of the day, after we had had our activities, it was like 9.30, and I had a tent, and I lay down, and I thought about the bear. <laughs> and I thought more about the bear. And intellectually, I said, it's 50 miles away. And I thought more about the bear. <laughs> And of course, at that point, one starts interpreting very small sounds. <laughs> As meaning, the bear is coming. <laughs> this is the movement from observation directly to interpretation with no awareness of the transition. <laughs> so... Anyway, I noticed, I, at a certain point, I noticed that and said, it's time for metta. Because metta, historically, some of you know, metta was actually, according to certain, some of the old stories, metta was actually a, an antidote for fear. Quite interesting. I, mean, I won't tell that story. Maybe we'll tell that another day. But uh, metta is actually an antidote for fear because it, it rests us in, in the kind heart, in the, kind of a, the calm heart. And so I started doing metta. It took a while. And I eventually, um, I practiced metta like from 10.30 at night to uh, 1.30 in the morning. Straight. At that point, something settled. I had no more fear. I actually had no more thoughts of the bear. I went to sleep. I slept very well. Had a good rest. And was there for another eight nights and didn't think about the bear at all. Um, so metta can shift the energy. Other, other things can shift the energy as well. Sometimes we have to do that and be aware. That's not the same as mindfulness, right? This is when we're out of balance Mindfulness isn't really an option. That's when we go to an antidote or to getting back to balance. And again, we have to know that distinction. Sometimes mindfulness might be an option. Something's difficult and I actually can be mindful. Then we want to use mindfulness. But we want to have a repertoire of ways to come back to balance. So it might be uh, a lot of obvious things. Talking with a friend, right? Might help me come back to balance. Uh, Taking a walk, shifting the physical location being in nature, being with beauty. Sometimes it's said that being in nature, being with beauty is an antidote to fear as well. Something maybe we feel connected with the larger uh, cosmos in a way which which brings us back to balance. Some of us may work with practices like uh, qigong or maybe, maybe yoga, but especially something like qigong or tai chi, which calms the nervous system. We may work with some of, some of the uh, activation that's distressful. Sometimes it's because we get triggered. And the, you know, the fight or flight reaction kicks in. And we can sometimes work with that to calm, to calm ourselves. 
in different ways. Sometimes just to be with the external environment, not to be so locked into the inner feelings can be helpful. Talking with someone, making contact, being, you know, being with beauty, being with something outside can be helpful. Sometimes humor can be helpful, having a sense of spaciousness. You know, I, uh, you know, I talk regularly with people who you know, uh, uh, ha- are having ongoing distress. And sometimes I find I can talk in a way which puts everything in a humorous light and it's heard that way and there's a change in perspective. Having, having more of a sense of spaciousness. Another, you know, a very, very obvious way to come back to balance is maybe just to take a break from something. So this would be the time out. You know, you're in a meeting, very distressed, out of balance. Take a long bathroom break. Or, you know, in a certain situation, you've had a difficult, <coughs> a difficult interaction with someone. Uh, maybe say, I want to come back and talk with this, but can we do it tomorrow? These are obvious, right? These are things we know, hopefully we do. But it's important to have this repertoire of a lot of ways to come back to balance. Some of them very commonsensical. Some of them can be done with meditative uh, abilities and so forth. You know, we might also sometimes use reflection you know, to really reflect on what's happening. You know, do I really need to be so reactive? Sometimes that helps. So the second approach is that of mindfulness. The second really major way that we're offering to work with uh, thoughts and emotions of all kinds, not just the difficult ones, is through, is through mindfulness, this uh, dropping down to more direct experience, the being, the noticing the thoughts, the, the being present, uh, having some stability of mind so we can actually stay with experience. You know, all of what we're developing here. Being able to be with experience with a minimum or no interpretation. Knowing the difference between being more directly experiencing an emotion, for example, and being caught in an interpretation to really notice. This is from the poet uh, Paul Valery. To see is to forget the name of the thing that one sees. To see is to forget the name of, that, of the thing one sees. Do you get that? In other words, dropping out of the domination of concepts, right? Going more to the direct experience. So that mindfulness, as we've seen, as we train more, it becomes non-reactive. We can even be with reactivity in a non-reactive way. I can be mindful of anger. I can be, in other words, the mindfulness, in a sense, has the upper hand with something that's, something that's challenging. And mindfulness can also have that sense of, of, of interest and even even the quality of compassion and warmth. There are a few forms of mindfulness that we've looked at. One of them we've seen 
is just the naming or the noting. One form of mindfulness simply tracks this as present. I know this is this thought occurred, this emotion is here. It's the naming and the noting, really knowing what's there. A second form is the more the dropping into the experience. You know, and again, that doesn't typically occur with thoughts unless they're associated with emotions. Often the thoughts, we name it, it leaves, right? But with emotions, we can drop into it, feel the way they are in the body, feel the rhythm. Then we can also track, track the thinking. And there is this second quality is really being with what's occurring. Mindfulness as the being with and even the, the exploring, the investigation. There's a very helpful model, which I think some of you probably know, which was developed, I think, by Michelle McDonald, who is an old friend. And this is the model of really four aspects of mindfully being with an extended experience. And it's, it follows the acronym RAIN, R-A-I-N. And the R stands for recognition, the A for acceptance, the I for inquiry or investigation, and the N for non-identification. So this is like a guide to how to be with experience in a mindful way. First, recognize it. And that is related to the naming, the noting, what's there. Just simply to know what's there, to perceive what's happening. The acceptance is to be able to be with it and to, if we can, let go of the resistance, if there is any, to a given experience. Just to be with it. And of course, the resistance might be more likely to be there when we have difficult experiences or stressful or challenging experiences. So it's acceptance in the sense of, yes, this is really happening, not in the sense of, yes, this is good and this should continue to happen eternally into the future. Different senses of acceptance, right? It's acceptance in the sense that this is happening, not in a moral sense that this is great, yeah, this is good, and so forth, right? It's an important distinction. Um, So... I can, you know, someone like Martin Luther King Jr. would say, yes, there is racism. I accept that there is racism, but I don't accept that it should stay in the future, right? So the different, you get that different sense of acceptance. Acceptance is a tricky word in English because we use the words in, those two, in two different senses. One is more descriptive and one is more moral, you know, and, and we have to look out for the use of that, of that word. And so we say, yes, there's anger present. It's really happening. I, I'm okay with it here. I'm going to be with it. I'm at least okay some. And I'm willing to be with it and explore it. Right? And the, the eye of RAIN is inquiry and investigation. It's the, the exploring. It's the exploring of what's there. There's a wonderful poem by Rumi called The Guest House, which expresses this sense of being willing to explore. He says, this is like almost a thousand years ago, right? It's pretty amazing. Listen to this. This being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival. 
a joy, a depression, a meanness, some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. It's like, welcome to the tea party. Because we, we were very, very similar. You're, maybe you were channeling Rumi. Or, uh, welcome to the tea party. Welcome and entertain them all, even if there are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house, empty of its furniture, still treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. So we can have that sense of inquiry and explore. The last, the N, uh, stands for non-identification. Sometimes we say not taking it personally. That we really approach what's happening with our thoughts and emotions almost like a scientist or like a naturalist looking at, I don't know, the behavior of turkeys at Spirit Rock, <laughs> which all of us are turkey naturalists, right? <laughs> you know, especially if you're around here a lot there. Um, eminently um, worth inquiring into. <laughs> And so we, we have that sense of, oh, let me just look. Oh, I'm angry. Oh, let me study anger. Wow. Let me look at it as if for the first time, right? That goes against the grain, doesn't it? We don't typically have that attitude. And with that kind of spirit, we can actually look at it. And in a sense, we're looking at these experiences for the first time. I had one retreat, which was quite a while ago where for various reasons, I won't so much go into them, but I was angry for the whole retreat. It wasn't a six-day retreat. It was a 10-day retreat. (laughs) And I was angry, and I was sleeping probably five or six hours, so I was angry about 18 hours a day. And... uh, I, I was partly angry at the teachers. And one of the teachers was Jack Cornfield, and I talked to him, and he said, I have some sympathy with the reasons for your anger. So you have two choices. You can go home, <laughs> or you can investigate your anger, and I'll help you. So that's what I did. Ten days in a row, 18 hours a day, Mindfulness of anger. He gave me some very specific instructions. Uh, And this this is partly getting into this next category of how we actually respond skillfully to uh, to thoughts and emotions. So he had me, he had me uh, really, first of all, use investigation. Really notice what how anger is manifesting. And so, okay, notice it in the body. So I would feel sometimes heat. Sometimes fire, a lot of different bodily sensations over quite a few days. A lot of, a lot of different, you know, anger is really um, quite, can be quite varied. You know, it's not one thing, actually. Um, so I found that, it was, you know, sometimes there was nausea, all sorts of different bodily feelings, a lot of fire, a lot of heat. 
and then watch the thoughts, watch the storylines. What are they? You know, what's going on? And that was really interesting too, because I started to find there were all these different variants of anger, not just one thing. Sometimes it was a really petty anger, like I'm not getting what I want. Right, and sometimes it was uh, an anger that when I stayed with it, because one of the instructions they had was really stay with it and notice when anger changes. Notice what it changes to. And sometimes I would stay with the anger and it would change to sadness. And psychologists say that actually anger is a cover emotion, that it covers over often hurt or sadness. And so sometimes the sadness would manifest. Sometimes I would stay with the sadness and the sadness would sometimes turn into love and care. A revelation, right? My gosh, what it would, if I didn't work with them that way, how would I have known? That was, I didn't know that. I didn't know that anger can have beneath it care and love. You know, maybe I might have thought about it conceptually, you know, uh, you know, like maybe a mother gets really angry at a child going out into the street, right? There's can be care and love there uh, that's generating the anger. So it was amazing to look. Sometimes my uh, anger led to sort of self-pitying. I could notice that. Sometimes I could see old patterns emerging. Sometimes I turned into a Hebrew prophet and I had anger that was <laughs> animated by a sense of cosmic justice. <laughs> you can do as you wish, but cosmic justice will get you in the end. <laughs> and I am the representative. <laughs> so it's fascinating, it's fascinating. You know, and um, just very, very interesting to explore like that, you know. And sometimes I, I would use metta. Sometimes I would use the mindfulness and so forth. And we can, we can actually do that with difficult emotions. We can have that interest. And one of the things that happens sometimes on retreats, it's happened to me, is that I have a dominant challenging experience in a given retreat. You know, I've had retreats, obviously that ang- that was my, ang- my anger retreat, right? And I've had other, ret- I had a, I've had fear retreats. I have to say, before I go further, that generally my retreats with difficult experiences were almost uh, equally interspersed with bliss and happiness. Okay, just so, you have to have appropriate advertising here for... <laughs> Those of you who are newer in the in the practice, do I want to sign up? And okay, here's my my next four retreats: anger, fear, self-judgment. <laughs> so so it really there will it really was a balance. But there were times when, and I have to say, staying with them, mindfully investigating them, none of them were ever the same. And there was a sense, maybe it's like uh, I, I developed a certain equanimity towards those. I really looked into them. I know those. They don't knock me around in the same way, right? I've seen them. It's one of the fruits of, of, of this work. 
So we can also um, we can also uh, work skillfully and in a more active way. And, and some of what I was saying was was doing that in the context of a retreat. That is, look for where the emotion goes. Over time, we can start to study patterns. You know, we, this is again, this is actually getting into what in the tradition would be called uh, the fourth foundation of mindfulness. Traditionally, the first three foundations of mindfulness as taught by the Buddha, first, mindfulness of the body, second, mindfulness of sense of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, and third is broadly mindfulness of thoughts and emotions. And those are generally mindfulness of the constituents of experience, the individual constituents of experience, bodily experiences, sensations, sense of pleasant, unpleasant, thoughts, emotions, and so forth. And the fourth foundation starts to look at larger patterns. And that's a big part of our practice. And sometimes it takes a little more active intervention. So I can, for example, look at, um, here is my habitual pattern of reaction. What tends to trigger it? You know, and we can do this in meditation, and we can do this in daily life. And sometimes this takes reflection. In daily life, there's a very important part for reflecting back on, a, on a, let's say, a challenging experience that happened during the day. Not exactly the same as mindfulness, but say, you know, I, I really got out there. You know, I got really reactive in that conversation. What was my trigger? And to actually reflect, oh, this triggered me, that comment triggered me, and then I had this emotion, and then I went to this judgment. A lot of my learning occurred when I was... Uh, working uh, regularly with a person who was like the boss of the whole organization. And I had to meet with him every two weeks. I was in a position of responsibility. And I found that I was uh, getting very triggered when, to use nonviolent communication language, the observation was I would raise a point. A short time later, he would raise a different point. In my judgmental mind, I would say, he's not listening. You know? And I would find myself, that would happen, and I wouldn't even know what was happening. I would just notice myself uh, retreating to being judgmental. What I later came to see was um, moving to a place of distanced, emotionally distanced moral superiority, which... which uh, I, I, I think I like to some extent. Right? I imagine this is familiar for some of us. Right? And so it took a while to actually see what's the pattern. Right? And it was something about, I would say something, and later he would uh, uh, bring up another topic. You know, and, and something in me just would react. Right? And again, we would say, I didn't feel seen, I didn't feel heard. I didn't feel listened to. And I, I started to see that pattern. So a big part of working with thoughts and emotions is starting to see patterns. Seeing what triggers us, seeing where we go, seeing the sequence. We can do some of that on the cushion. Really helpful, sometimes helpful to write down what happens, to notice that. Another way to work skillfully, particularly with challenging thoughts and emotions, is to work very clearly with intentions. And all of this is going to play a big role 
in our speech practice? Can I work with intention, the intention to stay in my heart, as Oren was saying last night? Can I stay with the intention to understand? To do that uh, in the midst of having challenging emotions or even any emotions is really important. So intentions are a big, uh, play, play a big role in skillful response, what I'm calling this third category of working with uh, thoughts and emotions. We can also uh, really notice what are the needs for values connected with what's coming up as we've, as we've been doing um, as we've been doing for a while. We also, maybe the last thing to say about this, some of our habitual patterns are very deeply rooted. Some of our self-judgments quite deeply rooted. You know, maybe my reaction when I thought he's not listening to me. I didn't actually think that. I just went, it was like that. It was like bam, bam, right? It was just immediate reaction. I could study that. And that may have been, that may be connected with a longer term pattern, right? And some of that may require working with a teacher, working with a mentor, working with a group, working with a psychologist to work through some very old pattern, right? And come out the other end. Let's see, I think I have a, there's a beautiful poem by the poet Antonio Machado, Spanish poet. And he says, as we really pointing to this work with uh, our habits, our patterns, the golden bees, he said, were making white combs and sweet honey from my old failures. In other words, I take my old patterns and when I work with them, something new comes. And I found that I could actually work through some of those old patterns. And this is a part, part of our work because some of this is just being with everyday thoughts and emotions, but the part of the work is getting to the deeper patterns. Some of those we can look at, especially with psychological means. Some of them we look at with meditative, meditative means, like really noticing very deep patterns of uh, forming a separate sense of self. Very deep patterns of shooting the second arrow, right? And the meditative means help us to work with those patterns. I, th- I like to think of the, these are really, we, to use Oren's language, these are the patterns of ignorance and delusion. And some of them are more personal and psychological and some of them are more universal. And we have to work with all of them. And we can do that. We need support for that. So we work skillfully with thoughts and emotions by knowing when to come back to balance, when to use antidotes. We develop the capacity to be, be mindful, to investigate, to be with, to study. And we also start having this variety of ways to work, sometimes more actively, sometimes involving reflection, sometimes involving uh, help from another or from a group uh, that we might call uh, skillfully working with, responding to, not just being mindful in a receptive way, but actively doing something. Actively, actively responding. And then we bring these tools into speech practice. And we'll be looking more, about, more at that. 
But you can see how crucial working with thoughts and emotions would be for speech practice, right? Because unless I've had developed that kind of, uh, all three of the abilities, the ability to uh, be able to move out of being out of balance, right? The ability to be mindful, to study what's there, and the ability to work through deeper patterns, to respond skillfully to what's there. Unless I'm doing that, I will be somewhat at the mercy of my habitual conditioning. Unless I've really done that. And I'll be somewhat unautomatic. And a lot of communication has that pattern of being somewhat automatic. It's sad, right? We can see that. You know, I remember there was some of the, the French theater of the absurd, I think in the 50s and 60s. They had plays which kind of showed the almost robot-like quality of some communication. It's like that sometimes. It's quite sad. Two people almost talking predictably, not really meeting each other, operating out of habitual reactions. You know? And we need to do this work to uh, be able to use skillful speech as one of our means to uh, respond to the situation, to have that responsibility. So we take responsibility for our thoughts and emotions in ways that, that I've mentioned. And then we bring it into speech practice. We can use all of the tools that I mentioned in the context of speech situations, right? I can um, know in a speech situation that I'm out of balance and try to come back to balance. Again, maybe take a time out, maybe take a break, maybe um, say, excuse me, I need to do two hours of metta. (laughs) You have to be clear what is would be understood as socially appropriate in certain context. <laughs> but we can do what we can do all of that personal. And then we can we can continue, we can bring all those practices, the mindfulness, even into the present moment. That's what we're trying to encourage with the inner and outer mindfulness at the same time, right? We can actually bring the power of being mindful into our speech situation. Not easy. You know, and for many of us We've really begun, just begun to do that, right? So it takes, takes time. And we can have this set of tools when we get triggered, when there are difficult situations, uh, when we are finding habitual patterns, and we can keep trying out the, you know, the, the, all the tools that we're looking at here. Maybe just two points to to finish. Part of what we discover with this practice is the difference between more direct experience, our own experience, and the um, interpretations we make. So part of the fruit that we bring into our speech practice is the ability to speak out of one's own experience without blaming another and without interpreting another. That's going to be the fruit of everything I've mentioned up till now. Right? The ability to do that, especially on the spot, when there's some fast-moving activity. We have to do that work 
of grounding in our own experience, of um, being, of knowing the difference between uh, interpretation and more direct experience, and knowing what's an interpretation, what's a judgment, and um, and and bringing that into action more and more, bringing that into speech more and more. And we also need to tune in, secondly, to that sense of what's the underlying value, what's the underlying um, need for sense of what matters, and be able to make that connection as well, and to, to have done, done that work. And as we do that, I think we're more and more able to take that kind of radical responsibility, along with others in the community, taking radical responsibility for my own mind, for my own heart, for my own experience. That's all of this is pointing towards that, towards not being the victim of the past. Even if we have habitual reactions, even if there's a lot, this is a journey about um, taking back our freedom. for ourselves and for others. So let's sit for a moment now. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.